Now, as we come to uh, the scripture today, I just want to make this comment that uh, it's much more fun um, doing children's sermons. (laughs) You hold their attention if you've got the right stuff in a bucket. Our scripture passage this morning is principally out of uh, Proverbs 16, and we're not going to have a reading of all the verses that you find in the bulletin, but I do encourage you to open up your bulletin and to look at that particular page, and notice how the scripture passages are in fact divided up, sort of a hint toward what the message is going to be about. Um, We've got wisdom concern number one, we've got wisdom concern number two, wisdom concern number three. And so the scripture reading is going to happen in the context within the message itself, other than trying to read all of them and reading them again. I think that'll be better for all of us this morning. And then also the reason why we're doing that is because um, as we've talked about this, this series, as Pastor Warren has introduced this summer series in the book of Proverbs, our studies in wisdom, lessons in wisdom, in the school of wisdom, Um, We had, you know, Eddie Brown preach kind of an introductory thing to this when he preached from Psalm 1, uh, which is about the two ways, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. Uh, Then I think a couple of weeks ago, we had uh, uh, Elder Tony Clark preaching about two aspects of wisdom, uh, the folly, which invites us to a feast, and then wisdom, which invites us to a feast, so two different perspectives on life. Pastor Warren himself has introduced different topics, but every time we've had uh, the, what we might call the, the downside of the wisdom of Proverbs, speaking to the things that are broken and negative in the world, and then what it means to follow the wisdom of God, there's always been a third element. And the third element has always been to bring in the person and work of Christ, who is himself wisdom incarnate to tie together uh, how things happen in the world with respect to wickedness, how things happen in the world with respect to those that God redeems, and how all of that is unified and centered in the person and work of Christ. Which always leads to this, that the way of wisdom is to live for the king, to love like the king, and to lead others to the king. Now, I want to pray then before I actually begin to formally preach out of these passages that you see in your bulletin today. So let's pray. Father, if we were to come and attempt to do this apart from the work of your Holy Spirit, um, uh, I speaking, those listening, uh, would be very much uh, deficient in every way uh, to understanding, comprehending, being fed by, being motivated by your word. Almighty God, you have rightly ordained that we be dependent upon your spirit and your spirit working in and through the word so that we might understand, believe, obey, live for you. So even now we pray for your Holy Spirit to be at work in our hearts and lives We know that the word itself, the scriptures, are living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And we would pray that as we think about, meditate upon, contemplate, embrace your truth, your word, your scriptures, that that living and active power 
of your word would work to change us, to open us to a deeper and more faithful obedience to Christ and a resting and trusting upon his grace and his grace alone. Now this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Once upon a time, and not too long ago, the idea of pride carried with it a very negative slant with respect to most of our culture, most of the way our society was put together. I can still clearly remember as a youngster, if I said things about myself that were prideful, if I boasted about anything, even if it were true, I got sharply reprimanded by my parents and by my teachers and by my coaches. Back then, our culture took a dim view of people generally, especially people in the public square. Uh, Boasting or showing arrogance in any form whatever. Society more or less viewed self-promotional displays as something unbecoming or actually contrary to the good order and decorum of a civilized society. Instead, there was a high value placed upon the virtue of honest humility. Humility was highly prized. It was considered the proper opposite and always the proper antidote to pride. But today, our culture clearly demotes humility. It promotes and celebrates pride, which tells us how distant our culture happens to be from biblical wisdom. This great contrast between pride and humility is a strong theme in chapter 16, as we're going to see. Uh, In particular, the verses that we're going to be looking at Uh, the verses that you have in the bulletin today. And pride and humility are two of the three themes that we're actually going to look at. Uh, The third focus, the third concern, is even more fundamental to pride and humility. It concerns Christ. It concerns his reign and role as king over all of his creation. So, What I'm going to do is take a number of key verses from this chapter, as well as from other parts of scripture. I'm going to pull them together, and I'm going to speak to three basic concerns which we will unify. I'm gonna do it this way. Essentially, this is the big lesson. The ways of the rebel heart, that's the pride, the arrogance, the bragging, the boastfulness. The ways of the rebel heart stand in contrast to the ways of the righteous heart because the rebel heart stands in deepest opposition to God. Nevertheless, God's wisdom teaches us that both the rebel heart and the righteous heart are entirely subject to God's reign through his son, Jesus Christ, our Savior and our King. Now, To make this simple and clear, we're going to talk about three things. We're going to talk about the way of the rebel heart, 
and then the way of the righteous heart, and then the way of the reign of King Jesus. Now, we're going to begin with Proverbs 16, verse 25, as we talk about the way of the rebel heart. So I want you to look at that verse. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Where do you see this first happening in the Bible? Genesis chapter 3. In the garden, during the temptation, there is a way that seems right to Eve under the influence and temptation of the serpent. It seems right to her. She makes that the basis of her choice. And the end thereof is death. Let's probe this a little bit further. What happens in Genesis chapter 3 is an appropriate paradigm for understanding the rebel heart. And clearly those deeply uh, involved in understanding Scripture would have read this verse from Proverbs 16, and they would have had that aha moment. Right. That's what our first parents did. They're in garden, the, the perfections of the garden. Um, there God had given them clear instructions. There God, God had opened up to them even the way to, to life. And they listened to another voice. And they made the decision on their own. They didn't consult with God. They didn't listen to what his voice had already told them. They instead acted in a way that seemed right to themselves, and it destroyed them. Now, that's what it means in terms of this particular verse. Things may seem right to us, but if what seems right to us is disconnected from God's truth, and God's wisdom, then we are being self-smart. We are being self-wise. We are using all of the limitations of our own finite perspective, our own finite and tiny set of experiences to make these kinds of decisions and judgments about life. It is to lean on your own understanding, even though a far deeper kind of wisdom is available to you. When you think and act this way, it's nothing less than rebellion against God. Eve's choice was the choice of a heart that became rebellious against God. Now, all of this defines centrally what is the nature of the rebel heart. It is the way of independence from God. The rebel heart is the heart that chooses to act independently of God. 
Do you know what the term invictus means? Latin term, invictus? Well, it means unconquered. It's the title of a poem that was written back in 1875 by William E. Henley. Uh, the poem is very famous. You may not be directly familiar with it, but I'm sure that there are a number of phrases within the poem that you will recognize. Let me read it to you as an example of what we're talking about. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and will find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Now, I almost shudder to read those words standing in God's pulpit to present God's word. Those last two lines. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Epitomizes this concept of the rebel heart that lives independently from God, even knowingly independently from God. Now, a couple of the verses that are connected to this, verse 18 and verse 5, they describe the way of independence with the concepts of pride and arrogance. Verse 18, one of the better known Proverbs in all of the book of Proverbs goes this way. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Then verse 5, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. So wisdom, the wisdom of God warns us uh, that the prideful and arrogant heart is an abomination to God. It's not a small sin. It's not something insignificant in the eyes of God. It's an abomination. The word means that which is loathsome, repugnant, hateful, abhorrent. Pride and arrogance are an abomination before God. And wisdom also warns that God will not leave those unpunished who engage in prideful and arrogant activities. When the tightened news cycle began, 16th of July through the 24th, eight days, 24 hours nonstop, three days into it, when they knew they were no longer hearing anything from this small immersible submarine sinking to the bottom of the ocean to try to find the Titanic, 
all I could think about at that point was pride goes before a fall. Why? Well, at the end of the news cycle, it became very, very clear that Stockton Rush, the CEO of the company, the one who invited as uh, tourist people to come and join him, uh, $250,000 a pop, a uh, five-seated uh, kind of a submarine, uh, what, what, came, what became crystal clear was that everyone who knew anything within the nautical industry had said time and time again to Mr. Rush, this is dangerous. But let's think 111 years earlier to the actual Titanic. When it set sail on the 10th of April in 1912. The engineering promotional about this ship was that it was designed to be absolutely unsinkable. It was considered to be the, the apex of all engineering ability. The, the aura of invincibility of this ship was so powerful that a, a wealthy woman who was coming on board addressed the captain this way. Captain, is it absolutely true that this ship is unsinkable? Captain's reply, Madam, not even God himself could sink this ship. God will not be mocked when he says in his word that those who are arrogant will be punished. It will happen in this life or it will happen in the life to come. Pride goes before a fall. The lesson here is not just for those people. The lesson is for all of us. Everything that God would say to warn the unbelieving world first speaks to his people. We are called to hear these words and to recognize that in our own prideful ways, we may be sowing the steps for our own fall. And so we take heed. The rebel heart, it is the way of independence, of pride, arrogance, all summed up when the Apostle Paul says in Romans 3, verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Why? Because it's the fear of the Lord that's the beginning of wisdom. And wisdom would take us in an entirely different direction than independence and independent living from God. So, these other verses that we're going to be looking at after, out of chapter 16 speak to the way of the righteous heart. And the way of the righteous heart, we're going to see, is the way of dependence. 
Now here I want us to look at Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. This is in those early chapters that provide a kind of big background for chapters 10 through 31. Uh, they're able to be read, and a lot of them are connected in such a way that there's a context. But this verse in particular, these two verses in particular, state the very character and nature of the righteous heart. When Solomon writes, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Now, look at the big contrast. The righteous heart is set on the way of dependence, the way of humility, the opposite of pride, the opposite of arrogance, the opposite of living independently of Christ. Now we can move down to verse six and see something more about this way of dependence and, and, and understand a little bit more of what's actually going on within this chapter. In verse six, Solomon writes, by steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. Now, there are two ways that verse could be read, but I want to say to you and prove to you that it's actually a salvation verse. One way that people might read this is to say, by my steadfast love and by my faithfulness to God, my iniquity is atoned for. And then by my fearing God, I turn away from evil. That the emphasis or the understanding or the interpretation would be placed upon oneself. Now, the truth is, you can't find that interpretation consistent when you do a Bible study on the phrase steadfast love and faithfulness. So I want to take you back to the, one of the earliest and most significant expressions of that phrase. Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. Now, Moses, in this particular passage, has begged God that he might see God's glory. And God has him up on Mount Sinai, and God says to him, yeah, you can't see my glory and live. But what I will do is I will hide you in the cleft of the rock, and I will pass by my face you will not see, but you'll see my back as I pass by. And he goes on to say, and I will proclaim myself to you. And this is what he says. The Lord passes before him and he says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. Now understand the phrase steadfast love and, and faithfulness. Whose are they? They're God's. It's God's steadfast love. It's God's steadfast faithfulness that brings about graciously the salvation from our sin. It's because of God's steadfast love, because of his faithfulness that he forgives our sin, our iniquity, and our transgressions. It's of God who brings about this atoning work on our behalf. And then we find echoes of this in the Psalms. Psalm 25, 10. 
All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimony. It, it, it's, these are the Lord's paths, not ours, not something we can boast in, but it's what God proclaims about himself. And in Psalm 98, verse 3, he has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Well, the word salvation, it stands in poetic parallelism to steadfast love and faithfulness, which, according to the proper words of interpretation, you identify those things. God's salvation is comprehended in his steadfast love and his faithfulness. The point is, is that this has always been God's way of saving people. It has always been of his steadfast love and his faithfulness that we are forgiven our iniquity and transgressions and sin. And in the Old Testament, all of this was, was presented to the people of Israel through the animal sacrifices as a picture and a type of what God was going to do in his son. So we had animals that were brought to the priest. Uh, sin was confessed over them. The animal was slain. Blood was shed. The whole picture there told this story that you deserve to die. This innocent animal is going to die in your place. When it dies in your place and the blood is shed, you are forgiven. Your sins have been placed upon this, this animal. Your sins are removed from you. All of that Old Testament picture pointing to Jesus when Jesus would come and John the Baptist proclaimed, there, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The righteous heart is the heart that sees and understands that the way of dependence is to depend upon God's Son, Christ and all that he has done. His atoning work for us upon the cross. Real wisdom is to see that we cannot save ourselves. We must put all of our trust and confidence in Christ and in Christ alone. Now, I want you to appreciate a further connection to Jesus that we actually see here. I want you to think about all the language that you find, the dominant words that you find in the book of Proverbs concerning the way to live. Uh, God's truth and God's faithfulness, which is often the same word in the Hebrew. And then life. These are dominant themes all throughout the book of Proverbs. What does Jesus say to his disciples in John 14, 6? He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Jesus intentionally uses the language of the wisdom literature to describe his own person and mission in this world. He essentially is saying, I am wisdom incarnate. I am the wisdom of the way. I am the truth of the way. I am the life of the way. You cannot come to the Father except through me, except through this wisdom that you must trust in, this wisdom who is the person, this wisdom who is the Son of God himself. That's what Jesus is saying. 
The way of the righteous heart is dependence upon Christ. It's also the way of humility. Here I'm going to read verses chapter 15, 33, chapter 16, 7, chapter 16, 2 and 3. I'm going to read these together and make some comments about them as a group. So listen to this. Chapter 15, verse 33. The fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom and humility comes before honor. And then we have chapter 17, or verse 17 in chapter 16. The highway of the upright turns aside from evil. Whoever guards his way preserves his life. Verses 2 and 3. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Now, pulling these verses together, there are some basic truths about humility, the humility of the righteous heart. First, humility, true humility, will always be paired with the fear of the Lord. True humility will always be instructed in and by God's wisdom. But humility is also a part of turning away from evil, even guarding and preserving your own life from evil. For this reason, true humility or a truly humble person understands that you can't play around with evil and ever hope to win. I want us to take that to heart. True humility, by the wisdom that God gives us, recognizes you can never play around with sin or evil, or wickedness. Or even dance at the edges of sin and temptation and evil and ever hope to win. Wisdom always says flee. Wisdom always says run. Wisdom always says, turn away. Humility also recognizes that we can be self-deceived. This is where you may think that your own way is the best way, but the Lord weighs our motivations. Humility will always take one's aspirations and hopes and plans and dreams and ambitions, all of these things that were ever about doing anything, it will take all of those things and then commit them all to God because when our plans are properly put into the hands of God, then he's promised that he will establish them. Does he give you the desires of your heart? 
It may take 25 years of you waiting and wondering, but it will happen. If you want to know the story about that, ask Mike Camp. God cares about us. God loves us. God wants to give us things that delight our hearts. But genuine humility always commits all of our ways into the Lord so that it is he and he alone who fully and truly establishes the things that we do. And that takes us back to Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with your whole heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, each and every part of your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. The righteous heart lives in dependence upon Christ. Now, we come then to our last point, the way of the reign of Christ Jesus, King Jesus himself. Now, I want us to be able to connect um, the, the, the general idea of the sovereignty of God specifically to the sovereignty of Christ as we look at these verses that talk about God's sovereignty in the world. So the verse I want you to think about is Revelation 4.11. Uh, as a New Testament verse, it encapsulates, summarizes, uh, almost the entire Old Testament perspective on God's sovereignty. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Now, all biblical theologians have said uh, this verse itself expresses, without any question, without any qualification, the total sovereignty of God over all things. Dr. J.I. Packer, in coming to these passages like this, says, the sovereignty of God is best understood under the concept of his kingship. He reigns and rules over all things as king. But that which belongs to God's reigning and ruling over all things is every much as part of the reign of the Son of God as it is the Father. Here's a couple of passages that I actually forgot to put into the bulletin reading. Hebrews 1.3, speaking of Christ, it says, he upholds all things by the word of his power. And then in Colossians chapter 1, 16 and 17, Paul writes, for by him, meaning Christ, for by Christ all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, 
and in him all things hold together. Now, the, these verses grant to the Son no different sovereignty than it does to the Father. The Lord Jesus has complete and total sovereign control, reigning and ruling over every aspect of God's kingdom. They share this sovereignty. So the reign of Christ is a total reign. Um, I'm old enough to remember when mothers made biscuits at home as opposed to canned biscuits. And, and one of the delights was to watch my mom uh, all this buttermilk dough, and she would roll it out with an old rolling pin like this, and then she'd take the cookie cutter or the biscuit cutter. I think it was the same cutter. And she would go around making these circular things all the way through, doing it as much as she can. But there were always trims and little bits that were left over that were always outside of the pattern, right? And I'd be standing there watching her and she'd pull off one of those. I love the taste of buttermilk biscuit dough, raw dough. Now even better, of course, when she did this with cookies. You know, the same thing. There was always something that didn't fall within the pattern. There was always something left over. And to get a little bit of that was great. And, and I know that for ladies, when, sewing, you have these patterns, but there's always some stuff that doesn't quite fit, right? And I don't think you eat it. I don't, you do something with it. But clearly, it's not, it's not part of the thing that you create, right? In God's universe, God has no leftover parts or pieces, no trims, no extra things for which there is no purpose at all. There is not a single thing in all of God's creation that does not fit into what he has created. Nothing in God's kingdom, nothing in Christ's kingdom fails to have its purpose and its place. Everything from the living human heart all the way to the inanimate objects of this universe, everything is under his sovereign control. That's what 1633 is really speaking of, especially in terms of the inanimate creation. The lot is cast, or the die is cast, into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Now, R.C. Sproul would say that that particular verse teaches us this truth. There are no maverick molecules in God's creation. A maverick molecule, one that runs off, does its own thing, not under control of God. There are no maverick molecules. And he would use that phrase when he would lecture to his students to point out to them, God is totally sovereign. And if you don't believe that, if there are any maverick molecules, even one maverick molecule, you have no sure hope that God will ever be able to keep his promises with respect to the future. If there's something in God's creation that he does not control, 
then there is the possibility that things won't turn out the way we have placed our hope in, the way God himself has promised. Unless God is totally sovereign, there is always the possibility that his promises would fail. But this particular verse tells us that even when the dice are rolled, every single decision or outcome is from the Lord. We cannot get outside of God's sovereignty over even inanimate objects. But further, because Christ is king over all of his creation, this also means there are no meaningless moments. Now, you understand what I mean by a meaningless moment? How often people have said that something that happens, that's just senseless, that's just crazy. There could be no possible reason for that to happen. Why could that possibly be the case? Even as Christians, we sometimes wonder. But because of Christ's sovereignty over all things, there are no meaningless moments, even with respect to the perpetration of evil in this world, that which challenges us the most. We look down to verse 4. We see what God does with a rebel heart. The Lord has made everything for its own purpose. There's the universal statement. The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, which means the Lord has made everything so that there are no purposeless, there are no meaningless moments in all of God's creation. Even the wicked for the day of trouble. The word in the Hebrew there means the day of trouble, the day of disaster the day of calamity, always implying the day of God's reckoning and judgment. Everything that happens, even the senseless things that we see evil people do, because Christ is king, reigns over everything, nothing fails to have its purpose or meaning. Now, you and, I, you and I might not be able to see it, and it will only be eternity that opens up the mystery of all of these things. But I will tell you what I have anchored my confidence in. One great proof God has given that the greatest evil in this world still has his ultimate sovereign purpose. The greatest evil ever committed was when the Jewish leadership and the Roman leadership created a kangaroo court to convict the only one who's ever been innocent, the only one who's ever been truly righteous, the Lord Jesus Christ, and put him to death as though he was a blasphemer against there is no act in all of human history that is more evil than what was done at that time. And yet, what they intended for evil, God intended 
for good, for our good, for our ultimate good, for our eternal good. If God does that with the evil perpetrated against his son, how is it not also believable and reasonable such that we can have confidence in that everything else that happens that's evil in this world has its final place within God's sovereign plan. This no meaningless moments also applies to righteous hearts. Verse nine, verse one. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. What are these verses teaching us? Christ is intimately involved in shepherding, guarding, watching over, superintending your life from your heart to the words that you speak, from the decisions of the heart to the actions that you take. Because the way of King Jesus is to reign fully and completely over our lives so that you and I have no meaningless moments. We can trust him with our whole hearts and lean not on our own understanding. Now, three concerns of wisdom here that we've looked at. The way of the rebel heart. God finds human pride and arrogance and abomination. We must flee from independence ourselves from God. Then there's the way of the righteous heart, which is the way that's most difficult for us. It's true dependence upon the Lord at all times for everything at every moment, the small things and the big things. And then there is the way of the reign of King Jesus, such that everything ultimately falls within the pattern of his ways and his will so that we're able to look at Romans 8:28 and say, yes, God, truly, you cause all things to work together for the good of those who love you, who are the called according to your purposes. Now, finally, I want to think again about the Titanic. And I have one more story. In that tragedy, one of the pastors was a Reverend John Harper, a Scotsman. He was traveling with his six-year-old daughter and niece from the British Isles to go to Chicago to preach in the famous Moody Church as a guest preacher. His daughter and his niece were rescued. Harper died with the 1,521 others who likewise drowned. But that wasn't really the whole story with respect to Harper. As the Titanic began to sink, uh, after he got his niece and daughter to safety, uh, he began running around on the ship yelling, women and children and unsaved into the lifeboats. Survivors reported that he began handing out as often as he could and as fast as he could 
uh, life jackets to people who, who didn't have them. He took off his own and gave it to somebody else. He witnessed to everybody who would stop and listen. This continued even after he jumped into the waters because the ship was sinking. He clung to a piece of wreckage. He continued to witness to anyone else in the water that he might drift nearby. Four years after he drowned, 1916, one survivor shared Harper's last moments from his own perspective. He related his part in what happened that night. He said, I am a survivor of the Titanic. When I was drifting in the water alone on a spar that awful night, uh, the tide brought Mr. Harper also on a piece of wreckage near me. Man, he shouted, are you saved? No, I replied, I am not. Harper replied, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And the waves took him away. But strangely, in a little bit, the waves brought him back. And he said to me again, are you saved now? No, I said, I cannot honestly say that I am. Once again, he said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And shortly after, he went down. And there, alone, in the night, Two miles of water under me. I believed. I am John Harper's last convert. No meaningless moments, even in the great tragedy of the Titanic. Wisdom would have a final word for us this morning in the words of the Apostle Paul. For us as believers, Paul says, may we all say this with Paul, I count my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given to me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. As ambassadors for the king, let us live for Jesus. Let us love like Jesus. Let us lead others to Jesus. That is our calling and our purpose in life.